morning. Good? Good. Wonderful. We're going to continue our study through Matthew. We'll be in Matthew chapter 11. Before I get started in the text, and thinking about what we're going to talk through today, <laughs> the dinosaurs, they're crap, I feel like... <laughs> Gotta watch out, might get bit. <laughs> oh. You ever walk through a moment in your life, um, a hardship, a trial, perhaps it's suffering, perhaps it's the loss of a loved one. Perhaps something happens, your circumstances are so severe that you begin to question God where are you? Are you even there? Do you even exist? Jesus, I thought you were a loving God, but why are these things happening to me? See, when we look at the scriptures, so often we find people in these circumstances, and it's not, it's not like the doubting person that, that just comes to faith. No, we see prophets. We see apostles. We see so many people walk through these scenarios. In fact, Lamentations, the um, responsive reading that we just read, that was Jeremiah as he's looking on the caves of Golgotha, looking at Jerusalem and Israel, his homeland, his people destroyed, taken away to Babylon. And he's questioning, God, why have you afflicted me? Why have you allowed me to walk through this suffering? And then he starts to think about it and he remembers who the Lord is and then he's able to say, I'm able to have hope in this situation because though some chaos and craziness and confusion is going on, God remains the same. He's constant. His mercies are new every morning. The fact that I woke up today, even though it's not the best day, I had a good day. I'm talking about Jeremiah. <laughs> The Lord remains the same. I can have hope in him because of who he is and what he said. This morning, we're going to look at a similar kind of story. Uh, John the Baptist, he's thrown into prison. To give a little context to the passage, if you remember, these last few teachings, these last through a uh, few passages have been pretty hard, right? We, we've talked about persecution in the beginning of Matthew 10, and that persecution continues on. And then Jesus talks about, hey, don't fear man, fear God. And we talked about fearing the Lord last uh, last weekend, and now what we're going to see here, Jesus, he's going to give us, give the disciples really, a practical illustration. He just taught them. He sent them out. He sent the 12 out. He told them, these are all the circumstances you're going to find yourself in. And they weren't easy ones. He wasn't talking about like, all oh, these people are going to get saved and yada, yada, yada. He was like, no, you're going to be persecuted. Family's going to come against family. Yeah, I'll give you the words to speak and some cool things might happen, but he focuses more on the hard things that are going to happen. Now he's going to give this illustration. He's going to show the disciples this is happening right now. And it's happening to a man that you've known and respected for a long time. This man, John the Baptist. Which brings me to the title of this message. Simply, Hope Despite Hardship. Hope Despite Hardship. Uh, as I was studying, as I was reading in the text um, there's so much that Jesus does, but I want to identify with, with John the Baptist in this teaching, in this setting, because I think that that's what Jesus is trying to get across to us. He's giving us that real life illustration of what it means not only to be persecuted for your faith, but to question and doubt and to let those, allow those hardships to bring you to that place of doubt. So, Instead of doubting, we need to have hope, hope despite hardship. Now, hope in the Bible um, is not hope as we use it in our common uh, American tongue. Um, sometimes we can say like, I hope my husband gives me ice cream after, buys me ice cream after church today, or I hope, um, I hope that, you know, 
fill in the blank. It's, it's like we have this, this, this culture that uses biblical terms like hope, and it's really hope in our culture is like wishful thinking. Like I wish things would be different, or I wish this would happen. I wish I would get a new dog, or I wish I would get a horse, or I wish my parents would get me this, or I wish this. That's not what hope is in the Bible. Hope is a confident expectation. It's like you know it's going to happen. It's not like I wish this would happen. I know this is going to happen. This is the problem. It's hard to have hope. It's hard to have this confident expectation in the Lord when we go through difficult circumstances. But I want to understand biblical hope a little bit further before we dive into the text. If you'd flip with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Verse 24 says, For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. Listen to that. Hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Hope can only be hope when we're in wait. We can't have hope if we're not expecting something. So it's like, wait a minute, God, he's trying to produce faith, hope, love in us. He's trying to produce that character of hope in us. So it's interesting how he goes about doing it biblically. So if we know biblically hope, yeah, it's a confident expectation, but there has to be an expectation. If Jesus is sitting right in front of me right now, I'm not hoping that he returns, right? I, my confident expectation is based on what he said and who he is, Hope in the Bible is so often produced when God puts us in circumstances that are hopeless. And he says it in Romans chapter 5, verse 3 through 5. He says, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Tribulations, it starts there. We glory in tribulations. Because tribulations produce perseverance and perseverance character and character of hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So look at that process. God uses tribulations to produce hope in us. He uses hardships to produce hope in us. So when we're going through hardship, we can recognize biblically there's a good chance God's trying to produce hope in us. And that's what we're going to see here in this story of John the Baptist picking it up in Matthew chapter 11, verse 1. Remember again, Jesus just sent the 12 out, told them all the persecution they would face in the future. Now, verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, are you the coming one or do we look for another? So look, this is John the Baptist, the one who it was prophesied about, who was going to prepare the coming of the Lord. John was so confident in Christ's identity when he was doing ministry, but now all of a sudden his circumstances changed and now he's questioning. He goes and sends two of his disciples while he's in prison. Hey, go ask Jesus if he really is who I thought he was. This is a different John than we see in the beginning of the Gospels. Remember John in John chapter 1, if you want to write it down, uh, verse 29 to 36. This is when Jesus comes on the scene. And John says with confidence and boldness, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's no question. There's no doubting. He's boldly proclaiming this to the masses. But now his circumstances change, so his confidence begins to diminish. Now we know from Luke chapter 3, verse 19, the reason why John's in prison he speaks out against Herod because Herod married Herod's brother Philip's wife, Herodias. Okay, so he's, John the Baptist speaks out, speaks up for righteousness. No, this isn't right. You can't marry your brother's wife. And now 
he gets thrown into prison. So he's being persecuted for righteousness sake, much like Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount and what he was communicating to the disciples in Matthew chapter 10. Now, I want you to put yourself in John's shoes, okay? I prepared the coming of the Lord. I was confident that this was who God told me he was. This was the Messiah, But now he's questioning, why is all this happening? Why am I in prison for doing the work of the Lord? If you're truly the Messiah, couldn't you free me? Didn't you come to set the captives free? And here I am captive. You even said it back in Matthew chapter 4, your mission statement. I've come to set the captives free, but now I'm sitting here in prison. Why? If you came to set the captives free, then why am I in prison? Because John, right now, He's not focused on the Lord. He's focused on his circumstance. He's looking at this situation, this hardship. He's in prison and he's focused on how hard it is and he's not focusing on the Lord. When we focus on our trials, it causes us to question and doubt the Lord. But when we focus on the Lord, confidence is produced through the suffering. Which brings me to my first of five points. Number one, let hardships produce confidence, not doubt. Let hardships produce confidence, not doubt. Now that's weird, right? It's almost like an oxymoron. Wait, hardships should produce confidence, not doubt? Well, yeah. Now let's look at John. He's probably questioning, is Jesus really the Messiah? Did, did John make a mistake? Now, now let's look at this, the doubting part first. If John made a mistake and he told all these people that Jesus was the Messiah... He just basically sent a bunch of people to hell because he said, hey, Jesus is the Messiah. This is the one, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. This is the one we've been waiting for. He led a lot of people astray. So this isn't just him struggling with uh, my faith. He's like, oh my gosh, I told all these people that this was the real deal, that he was really the Messiah. And now they all think he is. And I'm not even sure if he is. So I've, I've, this is a great sin. There's so much that John had to be battling in in this moment. Now remember, John saw he witnessed when he baptized Jesus, the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus like a dove. He saw it. He knew he was so confident in that moment. How could he be so confident in that moment? He knows that Jesus is who he says he is. He saw, I wish I got to see something like this. I wish it happened to me or something. Like, The Holy Spirit descend like a dove. Wouldn't your minds be blown? Come on. Would you you ever think you would question who Jesus is if you saw that happen? But we do it. We have these experiences with the Lord where he reveals himself so clearly, so tangibly, those moments that we're like, oh my gosh, God is so real. I can't believe I ever questioned this before. God is so real. I pretty much saw the dove. God showed up in that kind of tangible way. Now what happens? A little trial comes in, a little hardship. Things aren't working out the way we thought they were. And then it leads us to doubt. It leads us to question who Jesus is. Suffering shouldn't bring us to a place where we're questioning who Jesus is. It should actually bring us to a place um, that, that we're confident in who he is. Remember, he told us it's going to happen. We've talked about it several times before. John chapter 16, verse 33, in the world you will have tribulation. You're going to. It's inevitable. This world is, is not what it's supposed to be. If everything is going right in your world, then something's wrong. He's saying, in the world you will have tribulation. Why? Because we weren't meant for this world. So often God brings tribulation and suffering in our life to remind us that we weren't made for this world. We were made for another world that is to come. So of course he's going to, he doesn't want us to be okay with everything that's going on in this world. He doesn't want us to be okay with with all the things that are going on in the Middle East and even here in our home country. He doesn't. He allows the tribulation to make us, remind us, hey, something's off, something's wrong. So he brings tribulation into our lives to recognize that we're not even supposed to be here. 
But it's interesting, John, he's in prison, and he knew that this was going to happen on some level. I don't think he knew it was going to happen exactly the way that it did, but remember what he says in John chapter 3, verse 30, he says, he must increase and I must decrease. He knew it. He knew that there was going to be like a flip, like it wasn't going to be all about John the Baptist's ministry. It was going to be about Christ's ministry. Now, I think John the Baptist likely thought, okay, I'm probably going to lose my ministry and Jesus, his ministry is going to take off. I'm cool with that. But he probably didn't realize that decrease was going to be the loss of his life because we'll see later on that John is in fact beheaded. In Matthew chapter 11, picking it up in verse 4, it says, Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. See, Jesus, he spoke the word to these two disciples. These were John's disciples. He spoke the word to them. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. He's trying, even in the communication, he's trying to give them confidence that, hey, I am who John thought I was. I really am the Messiah. Go tell John what you hear and see. These are all of the things that I'm doing. I'm fulfilling prophecy. Which brings me to my second point. Hope in his word because of his works. Hope in his word because of his works. We can be confident in his word because he proves it time and time again. And that's what he's saying here. Look, look how the prophecies are being fulfilled before your very eyes. Tell them the things that you hear and see. I'm doing these things. Everything that was said about the Messiah, I'm doing those. The blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed. And he's actually using a handful of prophecies. There's prophecies from Isaiah chapter 35 and Isaiah 61 and Daniel chapter 12. He's using a bunch of different prophecies. So it's not just one section. He's like, look at all these things that I'm fulfilling scripture before your very eyes. You can trust my word because of my works. I'm not just asking you, and that's not, I'm not just asking you to have blind faith and just trust the Bible because I told you to trust the Bible. That's not what Jesus' heart is for us. He's like, look into it. Everything that I've said, I've either done already or I'm going to do. And you know the things that I haven't done yet, I'm going to do because I've done the things that I already said I was going to do. When you look at the prophecies fulfilled in Scripture, it requires very little faith to follow Jesus. There was a study, many of you may be familiar with it. Um, There's a study at Westmont College. Dr. Stoner was his name. He wasn't a stoner, he was a Christian. Um, at least I believe. I don't really, I don't know him personally. Um, but anyways, Dr. Dr. Stoner, he did, um, he did this study with 600 of his students, 12 different classes, and basically what they did was they looked at the prophecies of Christ and they crunched the numbers and looked at the ratio and odds of a person fulfilling the prophecies that Christ fulfilled in the Gospels. So they studied these things, they discussed the prophecies in length, and then they crunched the numbers and the ratios that they got from those numbers, they submitted them to secular uh, mathematicians. They actually submitted them to the American Scientific Affiliation who verified, verified the numbers. Sounds p- pretty legit, right? The American Scientific Affiliation. <laughs> so they took the, the, the numbers, the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, the ratio, the odds of a man fulfilling those prophecies. So it's like he was betrayed by a friend. He was born in Bethlehem. He grew up in Nazareth. If you just take some of the basic prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, he was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. If you just take eight of those prophecies, if you just take eight of them, Christ fulfilling eight of the prophecies from the Old Testament, Dr. Stoner says it's like uh, stacking up silver dollars two feet high across the entire state of Texas, marking one of them, and taking a blind man and saying, go find the one coin that's marked, the blind man. 
He's got one chance to pick up the right, not just two, two feet of coins. That's the ratio of Christ fulfilling just eight prophecies. It's one times 10. I'm going to do some math. Just follow me. I'm going to make the point. One times 10 to the 17th power, okay? One times 10 to the 17th power for you mathematicians out there. Now, if Christ fulfilled 48 prophecies, 40, 48, <laughs> I go 44. If he fulfilled 48 prophecies, the ratio is one times 10 to the 157th power, 48 prophecies, okay? Mathematicians say that any number, any ratio over one times 10 to the 50th power is mathematically impossible. So if Jesus fulfilled 48 prophecies, that's net, and there's no way that a person could do that. Jesus fulfilled between 350 and 450 prophecies from the Old Testament. Mathematically impossible. But what's impossible with man is possible with God. Mathematically, God proved the Bible. Literally, Jesus is who he says he is, and that's what he's getting across to John here. These prophecies about me, they're true. I'm fulfilling them. Hope in my word because of my works. I'm not just saying I'm going to do these things and not doing them. The things that I said, the things that were said about me are happening before your very eyes. And then he says this. Look at that last, pro, that, that last part. He says, the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. He says the dead are raised up. Why is he saying this to John? I believe Jesus in his divinity knows that John's going to die and he's trying to give him hope past his circumstances. John the dead are raised, you're going to die, but you're going to be raised in the resurrection. I'm going to come back for you. This is going to end with your death, but I'm going to resurrect, and in the resurrection, I'm going to bring you with me. And that's really where our hope needs to lie. Not in this world, but the world to come. Not in our world, but God's world in heaven. Matthew chapter 11 Verse six, it says, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. This is one of those like, oh, really? Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Why does Jesus have to tell him not to be offended? Because sometimes the things that happen to us are offensive. Sometimes the, the things that God allows to happen to us, it's easy for us to get offended. Sometimes the things that he says in his word we can take offense to those things. They're offensive when we take them the wrong way. They're offensive when we don't understand his heart, when we don't understand the big picture and what he's doing. And think about John. Wow, Jesus, you're healing all these people and you're leaving me here in prison. Don't be offended that I'm leaving you there. There's a reason behind it. It's the third point. Don't take offense take the offense. Don't take offense, take the offense. I'll explain. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, it says, whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Don't take offense of the things that happen to us in our life, the hardships, the trials, the suffering. Take the offense, Put on faith. Faith is the greatest tool, one of the greatest tools that Christ gives us to go through, to walk through suffering. It's our greatest offensive weapon. Have faith in the Lord in the suffering and you'll have victory through the suffering. We can have faith because we can trust his heart even when we don't understand his method. I have faith, Lord. I know that things aren't happening the way that I thought they would. I'm going through this trial. I'm going through this hardship. God, I don't really understand, but I trust who you are. And because I trust who you are and I have faith in who you are, I can endure. I can have victory in this life. And he says, 
This word blessed, blessed is he who is not offended because of me, it's the Greek word makarios, okay? It actually means a state of happiness or joy. We talked about this when we went through the Beatitudes. Blessed, it means happy or joyful, a state of, of joy. So now it's really interesting. Happy is he who is not offended because of me? Think about the context. Think about John's situation. I want you to be blessed. I want you to be joyful and happy right now, John. I know you're going through it and you're questioning and you're doubting, but I want you to be blessed. I want you to be joyful in this state of suffering. What? Are you serious? Yeah, I'm serious. And it can happen if we choose to trust the Lord in the trial, we can have joy through the trial. And we see it throughout the Gospels. We see it in especially, specifically in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas, they're thrown into prison. They get beaten, scourged. They're in prison, similar situation. And what do they do? They start rejoicing. They start singing. They start praising Jesus. And the gates are open, but they're able to have joy. They didn't, they're not like praising Jesus for what they think he's going to do. They're just praising Jesus for who he is. They have joy in their circumstance because they know he's in control. I doubt that they thought that the gates were even going to open because even when they did, they didn't walk through them. They didn't go out of them. But they had joy in the presence of their hardship. Picking it up in Matthew chapter 11, verse 7. As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. This is so interesting. John is likely in prison feeling condemned, right? Uh, If Jesus isn't the Messiah, I just let all these people astray. Is God condemning me for this situation? But what's God doing? What's Jesus doing? He's commending him. He's talking about how great he is. There's no one born of a woman greater than John the Baptist. So the fourth point. Jesus isn't condemning us in our suffering. He's commending us. Jesus isn't condemning us in our suffering. He's commending us. Now, let's not take this out of context because there's a reality that we can bring suffering upon ourselves for sin and things like that. We can bring that upon ourselves But that's not what's happening in this text. John isn't suffering because of sin. He's suffering for righteousness sake. And as he's suffering for righteousness sake, as he's suffering for the gospel, Jesus is commending him. He says, we'll read some of these, a reed shake, he's basically saying to the people, to the multitudes, what did you go out to see? What did you go out to the wilderness and see? A reed shaken by the wind, He's saying, John the Baptist, he wasn't easily moved. He was strong and steadfast. He was consistent, clothed in soft garments. He didn't dress in fine clothes. He wasn't like the scribes and Pharisees that were trying to appear spiritual. No, he wore camel fur. Interesting outfit. I don't know how that would work in the church today. Someone came in wearing camel fur, eating locust and honey, but if it happens, we'll commend you because Jesus did. Dan? Don't, don't try it. You'd be the first one, I feel like. that would. <laughs> Doesn't Dan look so nice today? He does, right? Next week, camel fur, locusts, and honey. <laughs> he dressed differently than the scribes and Pharisees. He was different than what people saw as a spiritual leader. You know, like we come, like a button down and slacks, like, no, he was different. He wasn't trying to please men. He was simply trying to please God. And he says he was more than a prophet. What does that mean? He had the greatest mission of any other prophet. See, all the prophets before were saying prophecies, most of them about the coming of Christ, the first and second coming, but about Jesus coming. John the Baptist actually got to witness it. 
He got to be the very one that said, he got to baptize Jesus. Like, come on, more than a prophet. And he says, has not, in verse 11, has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. No, no one born from a woman is greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What does he mean by that? That could be a little bit confusing. Well, look, he's talking about being born of a woman, but the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, so Christians, believers, were born of the Spirit. We're born of the Spirit. So yes, John was born of a woman, and he was empowered by the Spirit, but he wasn't born again because he hadn't seen the full fulfillment of the gospel. He passed before Jesus died and rose again. So with that, technically John's under the old covenant. John the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet. Now you say, wait, he's in the New Testament. Yeah, but he's the last Old Testament prophet. Why? Because he's under the old covenant. He's under the law. He died under the law. He didn't die after Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. So he wasn't under grace when he died. So Jesus is saying, hey, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. It's better to be least under the new covenant, under grace, than to be the greatest under the old covenant, under the law. We're under the new covenant now. We're under grace. The new covenant is better than the old. If you look at Hebrews chapter 8, I'll just read it real quick. Maybe it'll help bring a little more understanding. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, it says, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, and as much as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises, for if that first covenant, covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, know the Lord for all for all shall know me, for the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteous and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. In that, he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The new covenant is better than the old covenant. The old covenant was meant to reveal sin, to meant to reveal the fact that we need a savior. We can't, we can't fulfill the law. Try to, try to keep all 10 commandments for one day. Just the 10, not the 613 Levitical laws. Just start with the 10. You realize, eh, maybe you could do it for a day, maybe a few days. But what happens? You're like, oh my gosh, I can't do this. So what happens? I need a savior. I need someone that can, someone that can save me. And that's the new covenant. It's grace. There's a lot to that, but just to give brief understanding, that's why he's saying what he's saying about John the Baptist. It's better to be least under the new covenant, under grace, than it is to be the greatest under the law. Pick it up in Matthew chapter 11, verse 12. And from the days of John the Baptist... Until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. There's a lot of different opinions and uh, beliefs about what this is, but I believe, in my opinion, through study, when he's saying the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, remember he was talking about persecution, Christ's ministry, the kingdom of heaven was suffering violence, the enemy was out to destroy the ministry of Jesus and the kingdom of heaven as a whole. But then he says the violent take it by force. He's talking about two groups. Kingdom of heaven suffers violence from the enemies, but the violent take it by force. That word violent in the Greek literally means to take by force. So he's speaking to the believer. Take the kingdom by force. What does that mean? 
It means I'm rightly, rightfully claiming what is mine. He wants us to pursue the kingdom with perseverance. Take it by force, not that we're like <laughs> beating up non-Christians for the kingdom of heaven, okay? Not that, but we're taking the kingdom by force. It's rightfully mine. You know, he says, come boldly before the throne of grace in Hebrews chapter four. That's what he's saying. He's like, come, come like it's yours. Don't hesitate. Don't question. Like this is, you're my son. You're my daughter. Come, come boldly. Take it by force. It's yours for the taking. Matthew chapter 11, verse 13 says, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. That's what he's saying. John was the last Old Testament prophet. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Every time you hear Jesus say that, it's probably important. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's like, oh, okay, if I don't understand this, I should probably try to understand this. But, but let's look at this um, because I think we all need to understand it because Jesus is saying we all have ears, right, in this room. We have ears to hear, right? So let us hear, let us understand what Jesus is saying. He's saying... Okay, he is Elijah who is to come. In Luke chapter 1, verse 17, we see John the Baptist was of the spirit of Elijah. Okay, he was of the spirit of Elijah. It's not that he was Elijah in the flesh, but he was of the spirit of Elijah. What does that mean? Um, for you note takers, I'll give you a couple of references and I'll just explain. Okay, um, he wore very similar clothes. If you look at 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, um, Elijah, referencing Elijah, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist, okay? In Matthew chapter 3, verse 4, we see that John the Baptist was clothed in hamel, uh, cam, hamel, camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, so very similar clothing, okay? Um, he led a Levitically pure lifestyle. He ate locusts and honey. That's why he was eating those that was Levitically clean. Okay, they had the same type of ministry. Preach to a hard-hearted people that don't really want to hear anything that you have to say, right? That's what Elijah's ministry was. That's what John the Baptist's ministry was. They were both persecuted. Um, Elijah was persecuted uh, by Ahab and Jezebel. We see John the Baptist being persecuted here by Herod. Um, in, on the Mount of Transfiguration, which we'll get to in, I don't know, several weeks. It's in Matthew chapter 17. We see Jesus take um, Peter, James, and John on this mountain, and Jesus encounters Elijah and Moses in their glorified state, and basically Jesus peels back the human flesh and reveals his divinity and Peter gets all zealous and he's like, oh, we should make an altar for all, or a tabernacle for each of you. And God's like, hey, be quiet, Peter. But we see Elijah and Moses in that setting. Now, we know Elijah is to come, okay? Elijah had the same spirit of John the Baptist, the same type of prophet, but we know Elijah is still going to come. And in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, it says that Elijah is going to come before the great day of the Lord, okay? In Revelation chapter 11, I know there's a lot, but this is just, hey, he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. I want us to understand. In Revelation chapter 1, this is, this is what's believed to be the fulfillment of this, okay? We see these two witnesses, all right, and they're breathing fire. People that don't receive the gospel, they're dead, okay? So, we see these two witnesses that end up being martyred, okay? Now, it doesn't say who these two witnesses are, but many believe that at least one of them is Elijah. The other one could be Moses. The other one could be Enoch. But most scholars would suggest at least one of them is Elijah because he comes again before the second coming of Christ. All right, and that's what he's speaking about there. So there's a lot to that little statement that Jesus is saying it's something that he wants us to study and look into and understand. Matthew chapter 11, verse 16. We can talk about that later if you guys have questions. But to what shall I liken this generation? 
It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, look, a glutton and a wine bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is justified by her children. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, regardless of the way that I presented a message to you, regardless of, of the way that these things have been communicated to you, you're not receiving them, okay? John the Baptist came, came with a, hey, repent, the kingdom of God is near, this is the Messiah. He didn't drink, he didn't eat, he was Levitically clean, all these different things. Jesus came, with a very joyful message of salvation, the gospel, and the people still didn't receive it. So this is an exhortation. You guys, no matter how the message is being presented, you're not receiving the truth because it's a heart issue. It's the fifth and final point. Spiritual thinking is greater than critical thinking. Spiritual thinking is greater than critical thinking. I'm not saying don't be a critical thinker in the philosophical sense. I'm saying don't be a critical thinker in the judgmental sense. Okay, Spiritual thinking is better because what's happening? These people, they've all heard this message and they're not receiving it regardless of how it's coming across. Whether it's joyful or whether it's sorrowful, they just don't want to receive the truth. So they just criticize and come up with excuses for every reason why they shouldn't receive the truth. Well, John the Baptist, he's not like the scribes and Pharisees. He wears, just, he wears different clothes. He's kind of weird. He's smelly. He comes out of the wilderness. And I don't know, like, I don't really want to receive a message from him. Now, Jesus, he's like turning over tables and yeah, he's preaching the gospel and he has like this different style about him, but I don't really want to receive the truth from him either. Are you someone that's critical in every situation? Are you a pessimist? Do you find yourself constantly criticizing and judging? Do you find something to complain about in every situation? Because this is what Jesus is communicating. I'm trying to get truth across to you, but you're going to miss my message if you're worrying about all these other things that don't really matter. I'm trying to get truth across you because I love you. And when you're focused on the wrong thing, you're going to be robbed from the message that I have for you. I'm trying to think about it. He's trying to save their souls and they're just finding any reason they can. He hangs out with tax collectors and sinners. It's like, really? You're going to lose your salvation because you don't like his friends? That's sad, but we can find ourselves in that place. We criticize, we judge. I don't like the way that that pastor dresses or the way that he talks, or the way that he, we do it, right? But we rob ourselves from the message that God's trying to get across to us because we focus on these little things that really mean nothing and we miss the big picture and the message that tr God is trying to get to each of us. And then he says this, I love this, that last little part of 19, this is where we're gonna close. He says, but wisdom is justified by her children. What does he mean by that? See the fruit of those who are following the Lord's message, okay? See the fruit of these people and the transformation and change that's happening in your life. And then, then you can come back and criticize and judge because when you see the fruit, you're not gonna have anything to say. There's nothing to argue at that point. You'll see this as truth. You might not agree with the delivery of the method, but if you look at the fruit, you can't deny its effectiveness. Now, I used to get this all the time in Patmos. It's like a lot of church body members here, and we don't have members, but work at the camp, and they see some of the crazy things that we would do with the students, and they question the methods. Like, well, really? Is that even biblical? But when you look at the fruit and you look at the transformation that happens in those young adults' lives, it's like, oh my gosh, yeah, they're different. They're changed. They live for the Lord. They live for his word. But the same goes for 
anyone of God's children that are choosing to walk in the wisdom of the word. See, people so often, they'll try to discredit our faith, they'll try to discredit our ministry or our methods, but if we're going by the word and there's good fruit, then there's nothing they can really say. We're sticking to the word of God, what Jesus taught. And there's fruit. Wisdom is justified by her children. See, the wisdom of Jesus was unconventional. It was different. It was different than anything the world had ever seen up to that point. But look at the fruit of his ministry. He raised up 12 guys that changed the world. Literally, 12 guys. I'm just going to pick 12, okay? We know Jesus had more disciples. We talked about that the other week. But I'm going to stick with these 12 guys and watch what happens. Acts says, these, are, these men turn the world upside down. What do they mean? They, they're, they're completely different than the way we're used to seeing things and hearing things. That's why they were called the way, the way they thought was different. The way they talked was different. The way they acted was different. And those men God used, Jesus used, to turn the world, to change everything. It was unconventional. But the wisdom of God is unconventional. Flip with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're almost through. This is the wisdom of God. Verse 4, Paul says to the church in Corinth, And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The wisdom of God, suffering and sacrifice. Suffering of his only son, the sacrifice of his only son. That was wisdom for God. He said, this is the wisest thing I could do. Send my son to die on a cross for the sins of the world. That's God's wisdom. The wisdom of God will often yield the fruit of self-sacrifice and self-denial. That's, that's God's wisdom. I believe when we really understand this and embrace these truths, we won't get so caught off guard and, and doubt our faith when hard things come. It's hard to go through hard times. That's why they're called hardships. He didn't mean for them to be easy. But I want again, as we finish, I want us to empathize with John the Baptist here because I believe, I'm sure, I'm confident that there's so many people in this room that are either walking through a trial right now that they don't understand they feel like they're John and they're in prison and they're like, Lord, why are you allowing this to happen? Did I do something wrong? Are you condemning me? What's going on? Or you have walked through that in the past and you still don't understand why it happened. And it's not like Jesus tells us later why he let John the Baptist die. It's not like he brings that to Now we can make some assumptions, but he doesn't clarify it completely. But when we understand that there's a purpose beyond our purpose. There's a, there's a purpose beyond our understanding. I think we'll be able to have hope through the hardships. Remember what God says through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8 and 9. Hey, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways, my thoughts are far above yours. You don't understand everything that's going to happen. You couldn't possibly understand why these things are happening. We gotta remember that God's wisdom is greater than ours. 
God's wisdom was to put his son on a cross. Like, when I first, before I came to faith, when I thought about, I'm like, God dying on a cross? That doesn't make sense. Doesn't sound like wisdom. Like, why wouldn't you just get rid of all of us? We're the problem. Come on. It's like God's wisdom was to sacrifice his only perfect son. Yeah, that was the wisdom of God. And look what came through that, the salvation of all of us, the salvation of his church. Now when I look back at that and I realize, I understand what he was doing, that's the wisest move anyone's ever made in history. It's the wisest thing ever. But in our humanity, in our own thinking, we can go, God, that's not wise. Why would you let that happen? God's like, man, if you only knew. I would, try to, I would try to explain this, but you wouldn't understand. Time will tell, and he'll reveal those things in due time. So let us, in light of this, choose to hope in the Lord despite the difficult hardships we may find ourselves in because they're inevitable. Either they've happened, they're happening, or they're going to happen. It's a promise from the Lord. He knows what he's doing even when we don't. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. Lord, um, so often we can uh, question and uh, doubt because our circumstances uh, are difficult, Lord, but our hope can't depend on our circumstances. Our hope has to be rooted in you. God, as we prayed before, those circumstances change. You never change. Lord, you're always good. Our circumstances don't determine your goodness. Lord, you're always good. And I pray, God, for anyone in this church that's walking through a trial that they don't understand, they feel imprisoned just like John did. God, that you would give them peace, that you would give them comfort, that you would give them hope. That's outside their circumstance, God, because we know our hope is in heaven. It's not in this world. Jesus, so I I thank you for your goodness, and I pray that you would, um, by your grace, bring understanding to some of those things. Not that you owe it to us, but you're so good that often, sometimes you will. Jesus, we love you so much. We praise you in your name. Amen.